Hello, listeners out there in radio and streaming land. This is Movie Night, here on WOMR and WFMR. I'm Harry Kaysen, and welcome to the penultimate episode for 2023. Here on Movie Night, I've taken the great liberty of styling myself as a defender of the realm of cinema, a movie night, K-N-I-G-H-T. I have been a writer, director, and actor in Hollywood, though now I'm fortunate enough to reside in beautiful, autumn-swept Cape Cod, Massachusetts. It's November, and the holidays are coming fast. Perhaps you'll have family visiting, or you'll be visiting them. Allow me to suggest four new movies you might share with the ones you love. The movies this episode are The Burial, Killers of the Flower Moon, Jibaro, and the one film this month that happens to be my favorite. Return listeners know I reserve that title until the end to keep you guessing and tuned in. Now, my opinions are mine and mine alone, and I won't be handing out negative reviews. I know firsthand how challenging it can be to bring a film to life. I'm only here to praise the recent works I'm most fond of. And WOMR here in Provincetown and WFMR in Orleans are such forces for positivity. I want to honor that legacy like a good knight should. I'll also be interviewing an esteemed colleague from Hollywood. It's the first time I've had someone from his department on my show. He's a retired prop master. Yes, you heard that right. He is Kevin Hughes, and he spent his entire career in a kind of fascinating scavenger hunt, tracking down or creating key props for many fine feature films, some of which include Borat, The Wedding Planner, Boogie Nights, Teen Wolf, and The Black Stallion, besides having been on location on Apocalypse Now. Whoa. He's a charming fellow with a laugh like a bowlful of jelly. Stay tuned for our fun and funny conversation. First up is The Burial. It was written by Doug Wright, Maggie Betts, and Jonathan Haar, and it was directed by Ms. Betts. It stars Jamie Foxx, Tommy Lee Jones, Journey Smollett, Alan Ruck, and Mamadou Athey. This film is inspired by true events, and it's basically a courtroom drama, but with a lot of sidebars, shall we say. Tommy Lee Jones is a funeral home director, and he sells his company to a major corporation, expecting a quick and easy transaction. But they don't make movies about quick and easy transactions, now do they? Turns out the process becomes a quagmire, and Mr. Jones has to reluctantly enlist the aid of a high-powered attorney, played by Jamie Foxx. This happens to be the second Jamie Foxx film I've reviewed in the last few months, and baby, he's back. Some of you may know this Oscar-winning actor suffered a serious health crisis recently, but you couldn't tell from this performance. He's firing on all cylinders, and it's a pleasure to watch him do his stuff, from outrageous highs to subtle and human lows. What's more, Jamie's on-screen partnership with the very grounded Tommy Lee is the perfect blend of grit and fireworks. Okay. Just a bit more about the plot. The story takes place present day in the Deep South, and everyone knows they'll be facing a jury composed mostly of people of color. Are they going to play the race card? You bet they are. Does the megacorporation bring in their own high-powered attorney of color to do battle with the high-flying Mr. Fox? You bet they do. The twist here is that the race card is played for the benefit of a white guy. Will it work? The director... Ms. Betts never tries to force a perspective or load the deck emotionally. She steps back to allow her cast to shine like the diamonds they are. Not bad at all for a director on only their second feature film. 
And Journey Smollett, as the opposing attorney to Jamie Foxx, brings a sly, brilliant energy to the proceedings. If you like courtroom dramas, this is one of the better ones I've seen in recent years. And if you're interested in a story about the lengths some people go to help their families or the families of others, you won't be disappointed either. Fine, fine work from all involved. Available on Prime Video. And now we have Killers of the Flower Moon. It was written by Eric Roth and Martin Scorsese, based on a nonfiction book by David Gran. It was directed by Martin Scorsese and stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, Lily Gladstone, Jesse Plemons, Tantu Cardinal, and John Lithgow. This is the biggest movie to be released so far this year. Biggest meaning biggest budget, biggest ad campaign, most press coverage. Is it all worth it? I'd say it was. Some people are saying it's Scorsese's masterpiece. I don't know if I'd go that far, but it's certainly in his pantheon. The basic plot. Based on true events, it's early 20th century. Oil has been discovered in Oklahoma on an Osage Indian reservation. A lot of oil, and all the Osage are suddenly and enormously wealthy. But in very short order, they are preyed upon by ruthless people seeking to get their wealth from them by any means possible. Robert De Niro plays a local rancher who claims to be friends with the Osage, though he's a million miles from it, and Leonardo DiCaprio plays his hapless and rather dim nephew who is basically De Niro's lackey. Lily Gladstone plays a native Osage who is wooed by DiCaprio into becoming his wife, which just gets messier and messier. Jesse Plemons plays an FBI agent sent out to try and protect the Osage from the money-mad predators circling them. As you can tell from my description, this is no laugh riot. In some states, it might even be banned as a proponent of critical race theory. But the production standards are absolutely first-rate, as with all Scorsese films, and every performance is of the highest caliber. Lily Gladstone is especially fine, with a core of serenity and concentration practically unique to actors of our day. Expect her to be an Oscar nominee, and well-earned. However, this is not all Indians good, white people bad. There are subtleties here. There are shades, as evidenced by DiCaprio's tortured character who loves his wife. But does he love her more than money? But let's talk about the filmmaking a little more. From the very first visually stunning scenes, Scorsese sets a walking pace, shall I say. He takes his time, showing us this fascinating, though brutal, world and lets the story unspool as organically as any film I've seen this year. I'd have to go so far as to say this is an important piece, helmed by an important director. It won't be everyone's cup of oil, but I found it fascinating, tragic, beautiful, and very memorable in theaters now. And now we have an anomaly to this show. It's very short, by film standards, only 17 minutes long, but it's an absolutely eye-popping ride. It's called Hibaro, and it was written by Alberto Mielgo and Tim Miller, and it was directed by Alberto Mielgo, Jerome Dunjon, and Jennifer Yu Nelson. What's also unusual about this piece is that it's animated, but you've never seen animation like this. It's clearly rotoscoped, meaning they've turned a live-action frame into animation, a technique that's been around for a century, but my lord, Aunt Stephanie, you've never seen rotoscoping at this artistic level. Unless you've seen other works by Mr. Mielgo, 
The Windshield Wiper, a stunning piece which won the Oscar last year for Best Animated Short, or Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, on which Mr. Mielga was a creative consultant. Anyway, here's the story. A group of armored knights on horseback confront a beautifully dazzling water demon, seeking to destroy her. Except this dancing water demon has the power to overwhelm these knights with otherworldly shrieks that cause them to destroy themselves. The fly in the ointment is that there is one knight who is deaf and unaffected by this demon. That's the story. But the storytelling, wow! I was searching for a fourth movie for this episode and happened across this little gem as part of the anthology Love, Death, and Robots. I flipped through episodes until this came up and it stopped me cold. Is this live action? Is this animation? Whatever it is, it's artful to the extreme, borrowing heavily from East Indian mythology. Yes, there's a lot of new animation out there right now, a lot of it wonderfully visual, though unfortunately mostly dystopic. This ain't that. This is a fable, painted in flaming colors by a team with the souls of artists. They say Rembrandt painted in gold. These people paint in gold, too. However, be warned, there's a fair amount of blood and violence, so it's not for little kids. I have to admit, Hibaro's incredible images woke me up in the middle of the night, weeks after seeing it. That's when I knew I had to include it in this month's episode. There's truly nothing like it. This could be the future. Available on Netflix as part of the anthology Love, Death, and Robots, Season 3. Now, it's time for my honored guest. He is Kevin Hughes, a retired prop master, a very specialized niche in Hollywood, like being a fencing master or a horse wrangler. It takes a keen eye fanatical diligence, and sometimes a lot of luck. Kevin's early career included Apocalypse Now, and though that might have scared anyone off, (laughs) he pushed on to carve himself a distinguished career in some of the most prestigious movies Hollywood ever turned out. And he did it with patience, consideration, and kindness, beloved of all who worked with him. Can you tell I like this guy? Well, you will too. I give you my friend, Mr. Kevin Hughes. So I'm here with my friend, Mr. Kevin Hughes. How are you, Kevin? Fine, thanks. Good to hear from you. And you. Uh, so you were one of those uh, rare birds in Hollywood that uh, that people refer to as a prop master. Uh, of all the jobs in Hollywood, that I've always found to be one of the most fascinating. Uh, how how the hell did that come your way? Well, my dad was a prop man. He worked on clown breakfast shows of Chucko and Bozo type clown shows. He worked sure. on Soupy Sales. And Soupy Sales, was, my favorite. Yeah, he, he was he, he and... Bobby Kwai were co-pie throwers on the Soapy Sale show. <laughs> and, uh, and a grown man, I, a grown uh, man. This is his job. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, even before I was born, he had a fantastic job. You and I have talked about this before. My dad flew in the duck. If you said the secret word on the Groucho Marx show, when they shot the show in Hollywood a couple of seasons, his job was to stand by. And if somebody said the secret word, somebody would tap him on the shoulder and say, there, there, that was, it's toaster, go. And he'd pull the ropes and- <laughs> That was his job. That was a grown man's job. Someone's a grown man's a job. 30 minute day, you know, 30 minute, uh, you know, I guess he got paid for eight hours and they probably shot five shows a day or something like that. But Now we're talking, boy, that's, those, those, that's a good job. That's a good job. <laughs> I remember you telling me that his dad was a prop guy too, something like that. What it his is? His dad was in, was in the, in the union uh, and uh, worked on the, in the vaudeville stage in Hollywood. Wow. Uh, he was a sea captain 
he, he was in World War I as a captain, and he was in World War II as a captain of the, of the Merchant Marines. Wow. And, uh, cool. and it's funny because a lot of people came from the Navy and from working in the sea to doing show business. And you hear stagehand, gaffer, all those things are nautical terms. And the rope and, get, and, and the way that you're putting in lights and things is all done the same way that you would rig ships. No kidding. I didn't know that. And you call it the deck. They took the, you know, the, yeah. all that stuff is very nautical. And uh, so cool. my grandfather, having been in the Navy, then moved into Los Angeles and thought it could work vaudeville. And that was who they were, they were sure. pulling. Sure, 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 sure. Well, let me ask you about uh, those props in the news right now, obviously, with Alec Baldwin. What's your yeah. take on all of that? And is the prop guy responsible? Is the armorer responsible? Is the yeah, actor well, responsible? The, the armorer is responsible. The prop guy, uh, it basically is, is is kind of is the armorer's boss in the in a movie but uh there's so many things that went wrong on that it's just heartbreaking for me and uh it, it comes down to, in, to the art department and the prop man i heard that uh first of all the idea that the, there was a live gun out out on the set during a lunch break three things that i just said none of those should have happened mind that the the ad is playing with it when it's you know, when they're when they're at lunch, and why there were bullets on it, I can't imagine. Uh, except crazy people, because there are guns deciding that they could do target practice or something and shoot tin cans at lunch or something. That's insane. The reason you don't have bullets in guns is because something like this could happen. Boy, no and, kidding. And but I, as much as it it hurts me, it breaks my heart that it's it took place. It's interesting to think that in 110 years of movie making. There's only been three notable gun uh, failings where yeah. a gun killed a person. Considering how many guns have been used in movies, yeah, that's true. Oh man, and how many guns have been fired and blanks have been fired? It's it's crazy to think. Yeah, yeah. And many more, you know, accidents have happened. But this is an accident that absolutely should not have happened. There was so many guidelines that that any prop master that you know, that really knows what they're doing does not let happen. Uh, well, let's on a happier note. Yes, uh, it, se it seems to me that a, a prop master's job would be basically just be a scavenger hunt. Isn't that basically the job? Is finding yeah, all these to, crazy to, little things? Yeah, to read the script, get things that are in the script that you know will be handled by the actors. It's uh, I, I usually just read a script and circle any noun. <laughs> you know, right. Hat, gun, fork, place. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and if he lifts up something, whatever that is, it's probably a prop. That's uh, funny. And cars, keys, all those things are so. If it's a period piece, which is the ones I love to do, sure, uh, it's that scavenger hunt gets a lot harder than just going down to the, you know, seven. Yeah, yeah. Now there, I've been in a couple of big prop houses that were still around twenty years ago. Are those gone yeah. by now? Or are they still? There's around? two big ones still here, but uh, the the ones my favorites that were more of the middle of middle of the road <laughs> prop houses. Yeah, mom and pop. You get something, you pick up something, and think. And you'd see it in the one of the, the salesmen would say, yeah, that's been here. That was, you know, John Wayne used that in, in this movie or that movie. And it's kind of crazy that you're we were handling all these props that were just it, it, there's hero props that are you see very specifically in the hands of you know the actors. But always in a period piece, you know, everybody, all the prospectors are using cans and pans and things. So there's sure. not just the heroes, but a bunch of people in the background are doing stuff. I, I was talking in, in prepping for this, was thinking about a friend of mine who was a prop man on Forrest Gump. And 
the props in that movie are so good and they're so plentiful. It's a movie that goes through so many time frames. It's yeah, true. Know, like style movie, plus props that have to fall apart while he's running and right. ping pong paddles that were that had uh, China and Mao on one side and all the marketing that was done within the movie. And then they, you know, marketed it after that. Name some other prop-centric movies that you're fond of, just for that well, reason. Prop-centric, I, I tried to think of a few. I, I, I don't know. I, I've done a couple that were kind of fun. I think I, Boogie Nights is one that was a lot of props. We had live cameras that all these, all these as time goes through in the world of pornography, the cameras have been changing from you know, film, first, first mm -hmm. of all, to mm -hmm. video, and from video to cheap video. And then, and uh, what Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to do was to actually shoot with those cameras. Wow. So kind of an interesting crossover between props in the camera department, because we were, we had to find these old period cameras, and especially find them that worked. Sure, and, these days uh, they just, they, these days they just digitally you know, mess with it, I'm sure they wouldn't bother. Yes, but they'd still have to have what they're, they're all handheld in the actor's hands and in, in the shot. Oh, yeah, so yeah, you yeah. still see where they are moving and you see, you know, loading cameras and stuff. It was it was a, a real challenge. That, that uh, sounds like it. Now, let me ask you about directors. Uh, I remember hearing an interview with Sigourney Weaver with the first two Alien movies, and she said when it came to props and guns and things like that, I really couldn't care less. But uh, but uh, James Cameron was all over that stuff. Oh, that interesting. What he was the most interested in was all the props and the guns and all that. Well, talk to me about a director you've worked with that was very prop centric, and another director that wasn't. It yeah, wasn't, uh, well, that ever the case. Certainly, P.T. Anderson was uh, prop centric, and we had a lot of meetings uh, and showing him what we were hoping to use, and he would have a lot of input as to whether that was what he wanted to use or not. Uh, it's interesting because among those things were, you know, uh, penises. Oh, right. Yeah, the fake penis, right. <laughs> uh, that ended up, there was a lot of talk about that during the in prep, but the costumer was really the person who ended up doing most of that work, which was basically a, a, a triple condom filled with bird seed. That would, <laughs> oh, no, you're giving away a Hollywood secret. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I like to tell people that I was the model. Oh, of course, uh, yes, of course, yeah, somebody, blah, 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 right. Somebody right. had to make that, you know. Well, somebody's got to put the bird seed somewhere. Sure, <laughs> yes. What, uh, and, well, and then, well, Jim Jarmusch is another, is a problem, who, is a director who really didn't care about it, like you were saying. It was, oh, it was like, about eh. what, what actors were going to do. I mean, he had to have props, and the one movie I worked on him was, again, was a period piece, and there were guns in it and stuff, but basically he just wanted to make a movie he didn't care you know what was in it or not you know right right and the, the i forget the name of that movie the jarmusch movie uh dead man dead man that's yeah right. with Johnny Johnny Depp. Depp. With Johnny yeah. Depp. yeah yeah and yeah, yeah. it shot in black and white robbie Mueller shot it it's really a beautiful beautiful movie that is astounding stuff yeah. and props is kind of such a nothing thing really i mean it's it's important well, I don't, not, not necessarily i mean i, I think look at all the star wars movies where would they be without props my god yeah, they're, they're swimming in props yeah. Your, yeah. What, do you have do you have any ex ex uh, wing fighters in a box somewhere in, in your closet? <laughs> oh, you do that stuff? No, I didn't. Do, I've never done any real futuristic movies. Well, I did a couple of rodeo movies. So cowboys are. Uh, I'm hoping cowboy movies come back because I think. Well, me too. I, I, there's not a single actor I've ever met that isn't dying to be in a cowboy. Yeah, well, uh, you did a uh, cowboy movie in a way. I did. I did. I, I, movie I, I, is uh, kind of cowboy. Oh, wrote it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It, it, yeah. was, I actually I got to ride the hero horse too, which was a lot of fun. Too. Oh, nice! That's one of my favorite stories that 
happened uh, to the animal trainer was telling us a story on Dead Man that there was somebody that brought in a horse to be in the movies that they'd been training as, and they thought it could, you know, in with the other horses. There was a lot of horses in the scene. One of the horses' name was Action. Oh, no. <laughs> and they had to come up with a whole new way of shooting the scene. I guess so. couldn't retrain the horse. That's how we commence, yeah. Right. <laughs> yes, right. Start and stop, I think, is what they ended up with. <laughs> the idea of if you think you're going to do it, work in the movies and you name your horse. Don't <laughs> name your horse action. <laughs> <laughs> it's like or name cut. Don't name it fire. cut. Yeah, or cut. Exactly. <laughs> I worked funny. on a movie with Robert Downey, and uh, he, and it was a really serious scene. He wasn't in the scene. He was next up. So they brought him in from the dressing room. And uh, Bruce Dern and Kiefer Sutherland were doing this huge fight, arguing crisis of lifetime. Am I going to go to Vietnam or not? Are you my father? Is my brother really alive or dead? Really tear scenes. And down he comes up and he's watching it being shot and uh everybody's silent waiting for the scene to end and down he comes up and goes cut oh no <laughs> oh my god and then they looked around and thought oh that wasn't the director oh <laughs> my god I and everybody just... looked at him 50 I that guy. <laughs> they looked oh at downy and he went kidding <laughs> oh god uh, really uh, that movie was called 1969 and I, it's probably the f most fun I've had on a movie. Oh, but, dear me. Yeah. Let's talk about, um, speaking of fun, well, Christmas trees. You at, at one point, you and I were talking, you mentioned you'd uh, decorated a, a few Christmas trees. Uh, how, yeah, how I think of how most people, if they think of uh, how many Christmas trees uh, they've de decorated in their life, it's probably like 10 fewer than their age. Yeah. You know, I mean, you've probably decorated help to decorate a tree from when you were 10 years old until now yeah, yeah. Uh, once a year maybe a couple for other places and if you use that philosophy one might think i was several hundred years old <laughs> working on a soap opera there's you know nine different families that you shoot at every one of those families has a christmas tree the christmas oh yeah tree sure soap operas. Oh, so yeah. you work two different soap operas every year that's 40 christmas trees Per season that you wow. end up doing. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, tell not, our listening uh, audience what your brother did, what his job was. He was the prize coordinator for the Price is Right for, I think, 40 years, oh. 35, 35 or more years. Wow. His only job was to go to CBS and make sure that the right number of plates from the Broyhill living room was on the table that rolled out into door number two. And did so he say, and put the motorcycle over there a little bit to the left? No, or? no, he he was on the, just getting them from the warehouse to the set, to oh. the stage. Okay. And, then there, and in fact, for several years, I was at the other end of that. And when they'd come up to the set, then I'd be part of putting it on the ramp and tying the motorcycle oh, down. So he, so, so he wasn't schlepping this stuff. He was just picking it out. Well, he ended up as again. He turned out to be a management job, so he, he there was a prop crew down there, so he would point and they would pick up the thing. <laughs> again. A, a grown man has this job <laughs> for forty years. For 40 I years. couldn't possibly do it. I mean, he's he's a a Virgo and a writer, and it's the kind of thing he really enjoyed being able to have a steady work job. Sure, I I thrived on the varying and on differences and changes. So thank you very much, Mr. Hughes, and your uh, fascinating uh, report from the front, uh, from the rear, from the side, uh, you know, from offstage. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, it sounds like it, it sounds like it was a fun career. Was would you? Uh, is that a yeah? Good wouldn't change for the world. That's uh, wonderful. And thanks very much for the opportunity to talk about it. I really uh, my pleasure. I had this before. So when I mentioned to friends of mine that I'm going to be interviewing a prop master this time, they all sat up on their in their chairs. You're, you're going to do what? It's usually, <laughs> it's usually something boring like a writer or an actor. Is it? No, no, this is a prop master. Oh, I have to hear that one. Oh, great. Well, they can look here. me up on uh, on IMDb and see the. See my resume. One I'll quick do. thing. Oh, well, you're already, you're probably no, out. We're still going. Go ahead. Uh, uh, I would go to try to get a gig on a movie and show them my resume. And my resume, the first movie I worked on was Apocalypse Now. And five or six movies down on my resume was Teen Wolf that Michael J. Fox is in. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, that's not much of a movie. And, and, but Apocalypse, you know, I'm going to do this. And every time the you, you know, production manager would say, you worked on Teen Wolf? Man, that made a million bucks. <laughs> they didn't care anything about Apocalypse yep. now. Apocalypse, yeah, that old hack, yeah, right. Oh, I got my gigs. Game <laughs> Wolf, hilarious. Uh, all right, Mr. Hughes, thank you so very much. Thank you, Harry. It's a pleasure talking to you. And you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Up next is my favorite film for this month, and the title is A Thousand and One. It was written, produced, and directed by a single person, A.V. Rockwell, and it stars Tiana Taylor, Will Catlett, Aaron Kingsley Editola, and Josiah Cross. Here's the story. It's Harlem, NYC, in the 90s and early 2000s. A young black woman, a single mother, newly released from prison for theft, abducts her son from foster care, and they go underground together, somehow trying to make it with almost no money and almost no friends a slice-of-life movie in an arena of life rarely shown in major motion pictures, all of it inspired by the writer-director's remembrance of things past. This film won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance this year, which puts it in the same category as Minari and Coda, both of whom went on to win Best Picture Oscars, so it's in very good company. I think it has a real shot. This is Ms. Rockwell's first feature-length film, and it's a stunner. The cinematography by Eric Yu is particularly fine, most of all for how completely unobtrusive it always is. You forget you're watching a film and start to believe you're eavesdropping on real people's real lives. And the acting. There's hardly any acting in this film at all. There's only being. I recently was in London and saw a stage production put on by the Royal Shakespeare Company. There was a hell of a lot of acting that night, and not necessarily in a good way. It's just the opposite here. Tiana Taylor's performance has been generating a lot of buzz, and I'd be shocked if she wasn't nominated for an Oscar. She's as honest and true as a young Cicely Tyson, which is high praise indeed. She's fiery, mesmerizing, heartbreaking, funny, and bone marrow real. And Will Catlett isn't far behind as her partner. And there's an added surprise near the end, a big one. Far be it from me to give that away. But do yourself a favor and don't read about it online somewhere. It's worth waiting for. However, this film is gritty with a capital G, though it never feels exploitive or show-offy. There's no hard drug use. There's no nudity, but there is a lot of profanity, and it's definitely not for kids. It's available on Prime Video, and it's a real winner. That's it for November 2023. Thanks to my guest, Mr. Kevin Hughes, and thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. We are in a pledge drive right now, and you can show your appreciation by making a donation in any amount to our nonprofit station, WOMR. 
You can do so by calling us directly at 508-487-2619 or going online to www.womr.org. Goodbye and good movies.